0: Well, I want to finish up Ephesians this morning. Ephesians chapter six, verse ten, if you will, please. We got as far as uh, verse twelve last uh, Sunday morning, if I remember correctly. But we're going to back up and, and start in verse ten and, and cover the, the final section of um, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We've said before that the Ephesian letter is different than anything else that we have in uh, in the New Testament. In that, uh, it was not, apparently it was not written to just one church. There's, a, in the, the the most ancient text, there's a blank in that was, uh, uh, hand that has handwritten in that blank uh, to Ephesus. Paul writes to the church blank, and it was handwritten in the original, the ancient text, most ancient text, that it was to Ephesus. That indicates to us that it was intended to be a letter to pa- that was passed around to many churches, and uh, Ephesus certainly being one of them. Uh, it's a different letter in that uh, Paul's not writing to address a certain problem in any specific church, but it's more of a up and take a big picture view of what the church should look like in the world. And as such, Paul deals with some, some outstanding, wonderful topics of who we are in Christ and our position in him first three chapters are all about who we are in Christ and the position that we have seated with Christ in heavenly places, and then the last three chapters are all about how to make that work in the world. So we get down to chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, and Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, the fact that Paul says, finally, is an indication that this was the the, the message that he was saving for last, that it was certainly of greatest importance to Paul to arrange it and order it in this manner. Now, it doesn't mean that it was more important than anything else that he's written. You can't get anything any more important than who we are in Christ and his resurrection power and so forth. But instead, it means finally or of greatest importance because it incorporates all the doctrines that he's uh, revealed before earlier in this letter for us to live in a practical application. So he says, finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Let me read down through verse 12, and then we'll stop and make some comments. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places. Then he goes forward and says, wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God. Now, there's, uh, there are many things that we said last week that we will not repeat about these uh, three verses, but a couple of things that we do want you to see in, in context of the whole armor of God, and that is, Paul knows who, the, who his audience is. He's writing to, among others, the church at Ephesus. Specifically, he's writing to the churches in Asia. There were seven specific churches in Asia, major churches in Asia, that Paul knows that this letter is going to be circulated around to. They're steeped in Greek culture. There are some Jews there in Ephesus, probably not too many, but some. And, um, and so he knows who his audience is. It's primarily a Gentile culture. But he incorporates both the thought that the Jews can relate to and also the, the, the Gentiles, the Greeks, literally. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 11, he draws from what Moses told the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 8, let me read this to you, and we'll talk about the context therein. He said, therefore, Moses is speaking to the children of Israel in his farewell address. He says, therefore, shall you keep all the commandments which I command you this day, that you may be strong and go in and possess the land whether you go to possess it. So Paul knows when he says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, he's drawing on his Jewish history, his knowledge of Jewish history and custom and so forth. Knowing that this is what Moses told the people. This was Moses' final word to the people before they went in to take this promised land. He told them, be strong. He told them specifically to be strong in the keeping the commandments, that they would be able to possess the land. Paul is carrying on that same theme in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter six, because he's talking to the church and saying, Now look, here's how the church possesses the land that Jesus has provided for us. Here's how you do it. And it's all wrapped up in the armor of God. Now the second thought about this this uh, uh, instruction, imperative to be strong in the Lord. Again, as I said, he knows he's talking to people that are steeped in Greek culture. They know Greek mythology. Uh, Ephesus was about 30 or 40 miles away from the city of Pergamon. Pergamon was world famous for having uh, the altar of Zeus. It was this huge, huge edifice and, and place where people would offer sacrifices and so forth. So he knows they are, they're well-versed and very knowledgeable in Greek mythology and Greek gods and, and so forth. He knows they don't worship them, but he knows that they're aware of them. So he uses a word. He actually makes up a word. that's a combination of two words, puts them together for the first time ever, and is translated in the King James as Strong. Now, the word that he uses is a word that means strength or power, as in the power that Hercules had to do the work of the gods. You remember the story of the mythology, the, the myth of, um, of Hercules, how that he was born of Zeus and he was here on the earth. He had superhuman strength specifically to carry out the purpose of the gods, to, uh, uh, to attain certain, uh, Well, I don't remember, the seven tasks or whatever it was of Hercules that he was supposed to do. He had superhuman strength and ability to do that. Paul uses that word, and he knows the Greeks are going to understand what he's talking about. He uses that word and adds super to it. So he's literally saying, when he says, be strong with the Lord, he's saying, use super Herculean strengths. And remember, his whole purpose in the the letter to Ephesus, the other churches, is to show this is what the church is supposed to look like. This is who the church is as far as God is concerned. This is how the church is supposed to look in the world. Now, how are we going to get that super Herculean strength? Well, it only resides in one place, and that's in Jesus. So he's literally saying, finally, brethren, most importantly, finally, use super Herculean strength that can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the power of his might. That mighty power that he refers to is back in... Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, he's talking about resurrection power. So he's saying, of all the things that I've shared with you, the most important thing for you to realize is that you have divine, superhuman, supernatural, miraculous resurrection power and strength available to you. For what purpose? That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. What's his final message to the church? Overcome the devil in your life. Of everything that he said, of everything that we've been made in Jesus Christ, and of everything Jesus has done for us, it's all for one major final purpose, and that is to overcome the work of the devil in our lives. So he says, verse 11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Two words here you need to be aware of. First of all, the word wiles. We've talked about that. It literally means with a road. It comes from a a root word that means to travel over. In other words, he's saying the devil operates one and only one way. You don't have to guard against the devil on every front in your life. You need to guard against the devil in one, one and only one way because there's only one road he takes into you, into your life, into your circumstances and so forth, and that is through the mind. Through the mind. When he says be strong in the Lord, he's talking about be strong or sound of mind. If you learn to think right, then you can overcome anything and everything the devil has and everything he throws at you. And that's what the armor of God is all about. So when he talks about guarding against the work of the devil, standing against the wiles of the devil, he said, he's talking specifically about guarding against the work of the devil in your mind. Now, there are 17 different words that are used in the Bible for the, for, uh, the devil. Of those 17 words, they really come down to four categories. One is he's a destroyer. Two is he's a perverter of, a, of man's nature. The third is he wants to control or dominate you. And the fourth is he's a manipulator through thoughts. Those four things, you know those four things about the devil, that's all you'll ever need to know. No point in studying on the devil, no point in trying to figure out classifications of demons. The devil has four main purposes to destroy, to pervert your nature. To control or dominate you and to manipulate you through your mind. And he does all of those things through thoughts. That's the only weapon he has. So here where Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Finally, the word stand. I need to speak to the word stand for just a minute because it means to be fixed, immovable, in position. To be fixed as an immovable object. To never move, to never waver, to never fall, but to stand and stand immovably, to be fixed in position. You need to understand something, folks. The Bible tells us without equivocation, without any doubt whatsoever, that you have been given power to overcome every work of the devil. You know that the church world knows that the church is lamenting well why don't we overcome and why don't we conquer the devil if we've been given power over him if we've been given the power of the resurrected Lord and Jesus then why is that not sufficient to overcome the problems that I encounter in my life and on and on and on why therefore if that power is so much greater than the power of the devil the power of Jesus is so much greater than the power of the devil how come I'm having the problems I'm having and folks the answer is very simple The church doesn't understand what the fight is. The fight is not what the church wants it to be. Where we come in as the great power, speak the word, and in five seconds the power of the devil is broken and he runs for cover for the next 50 years. Now wouldn't we want it to be that way? We want to be the ones that walk in as the overwhelming force, take care of the devil once and for all, instantly, be done and that's it. But that's not the devil's fight. That's not the, church, the churches or the Christian's fight. The church's fight, the Christian's fight, the battle is to stand. It's to stand. If you don't understand this, folks, you'll never have a victory in, the, in what Jesus has provided for you. And that is your job is to outlast the devil. Your job is not to show him you're stronger than him. Your job is not even to out talk him. Your job is to outlast him. Jesus said that upon the knowledge that he was the Son of God, he would build his church and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. One translation, the translation I particularly like, says the gates of hell should not be able to hold out against it. Folks, God's power is shown more rarely in instant manifestations than it is in long-term results. Now, most everybody wants instant results. Most everybody gives up when they don't get instant results because they're so concerned about their feelings or their comfort, they won't hold out. Now, that brings up another issue, and that is if, if the power of the church is greater than the power of the devil, why does the devil win so often? Because the devil has something that most Christians don't exercise, and that is Discipline. If there's one thing that you can say about the devil that's positive, he perseveres. You know what the early church considered to be the greatest of the fruit of the Spirit? Long suffering. Long suffering literally means stick to itiveness. They understood that the real victory is in hanging in there. Not giving up, no matter how you feel, no matter what it looks like, no matter what. To stay in there, hang in there, stand strong, stick to it. You do that and the devil can't win. And that's what it comes down to. Being strong in the Lord and the power of his might is to rely on the Lord's strength in making a determination, a decision that you'll never quit. If you never quit, the devil can't win. You know why the devil wins so much in Christians' lives? Because we give up. So when Paul is saying, finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, he's saying, here's how to tap in to that super Herculean strength that comes only from Jesus. That resurrection power that's available to us. Stand. Stand. Put on the armor of God. There are tools. There are ways to think There are things to understand that will enable you to stand against the devil's purpose. But the job is to stand. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. A lot of times people want to talk about what's principality, what's power, what's the rule of the darkness of this world. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The issue is very simply this. The point of verse 12 is this. You're in a fight. It's not an earthly fight. It's not a fleshly fight. People are never your problem. And remember the purpose that Paul is writing to is that here's what the church is supposed to look like in the world. In other words, the church shouldn't shouldn't concern itself with trying to deal with people. Because people are never the problem. The church should exercise authority, the power that's in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, to exercise authority over the evil spirits that are operating behind the scenes. Now, the word wrestle is an interesting word because Paul uses something that draws on the Greek culture again. The word wrestle is talking about the forms of, of physical competition that they undertook in those days. It's not like wrestling in our days. It's not like UFC fighting where these big guys are throwing each other up in the air and stuff like that. These were usually fights to the death. There were no holds barred, no rules. You could do anything and everything to survive. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying this is a mortal, spiritual conflict that never ends till you win. Wherefore, verse 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, Stand, therefore. Notice how many times he talks about standing. 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 He says you're going to have to prepare yourself to stand, and then after you make preparation to stand, then comes the standing part. Outlast the devil. Folks, you need to go into every faith fight with the idea that this may not happen by next Friday. You need to go into every faith battle. With the understanding that the word of God is true. And because the word of God is true. I'm never going to turn back on it. I'm never going to give up on it. And therefore it will be exactly like the Bible says. 99.99% of the people. That have questions. About the operation of faith. Or, or so, so, something along those lines. Are asking questions. Because of Time. When is it going to happen? Pastor Mike, I prayed last week. When can I expect it to happen? It's all relative to time. Everybody's question about faith is relative to time. Because we want everything to happen instantly. I'm just like you. I want instant results. But we don't always get instant results. Well, what do we do then? Well, that's the real question. What do you do then? Real faith is not impaired or hindered by delay. Real faith recognizes that after the word of God is spoken, patience is necessary because faith and patience inherit or bring re- into reality the promises of God. So it all comes down to outlasting the devil. Terry Mize told me one time that T.L. Osborne said to him when he first went on the mission field, he said, No, Terry, he said there's one thing you're going to need to know when it comes to dealing with evil spirits and the work of the devil. He said, You're going to have to stay in there until the devil leaves. Of all the stories that you've heard Terry tell about people being raised from the dead and different things like that, different uh, miracles that happened and so forth, very, very, very few of them happened instantly. One of the greatest stories that I've heard him tell about the raising of the dead was after praying for a little girl for 12 hours overnight. How many people do you know that was stuck in there for 12 hours? After 12 hours, this little girl being stone cold dead for 12 hours, life came back into her body because he wouldn't quit. Terry told me himself, he said, the devil knows when I start working on something, I won't quit. He said, when the devil knows that, it's just a matter of time. And that is the issue. It's a matter of time. So he says, wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day having and having done all to stand, stand therefore. In other words, there's a preparation to be able to be successful and overcome the devil. There's a preparation that's necessary. And he's going to tell you how to prepare. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Having your loins girt about with truth. Now folks, at the time Paul writes this, he's in under house arrest in Rome. That house arrest means that he's probably chained to a prisoner. I'm sorry, as a prisoner, he's probably chained to a Roman soldier. So he's watching a Roman soldier day after day after day, fully dressed, fully clothed, in his armor, the things that they wore. He's seeing this guy day after day after day. Now, let me ask you a question. It says Paul was that way for two years in Rome, uh, two years after he got to Rome, besides the time that it took him to get there, you know, the shipwreck and all that other kind of stuff. What would you expect Paul to do with this guy? Now, they were on shifts, so it wasn't just one guy. But every four to six hours, they would shift, and, and, and new guys would come in. But it was probably the same people he's seeing over and over again, just trading shifts and so forth. What do you think Paul's doing with these guys for, the, for those two years? I would imagine they've heard more preaching in two years than you could possibly imagine. Paul is going to be doing everything he can to win them to the Lord. He's going to be making friends with them. He's going to be doing, he's talking to them. He's asking questions. He's probably saying, "Hey, what's that?" Pointing out pieces of the armor. How does that work, and so forth. After two years, or getting toward the end of two years, Paul writes this letter to the churches that we call to the Ephesians. He writes this letter and he identifies here's how Roman soldiers' armor corresponds to and is a great example of our armor, our spiritual armor, and the things that we have in Christ. And the first thing that he mentions is the the belt, having your loins girt about with truth. He's talking about the belt. And let me ask you a question. In anybody's dress, church, women fancied up, whatever, how many people notice the belt? I mean, a lot of times we get dressed up you can't even tell if somebody's wearing a belt. But Paul starts off with the belt. Loins gird about with truth. He starts off with the belt. The reason for that is because the belt ties everything together. Now, what is he talking about? Well, Peter said this. First Peter chapter 1, verse 19, I think it is. Peter said this. He said, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Paul, whether he's aware of what Peter wrote or not, we don't know. But Paul is directed by the Holy Ghost to to, uh, expand on that illustration. And what he's saying literally is, let the truth of the Word of God dominate your emotions or guard your emotions. Now, folks, you need to remember something. The devil has only one road to travel, and that is through the mind. How does he try to affect your mind? He's really after one thing, and that is your words. He's trying to affect your speech. But there's only one road that he travels. And that one road that he travels is very simply this. He will try to affect either your emotions or put thoughts in your mind for the purpose of affecting your tongue, directing your tongue. He's after your words. Why? Because words are the exercise of authority and dominion. So if he can get you saying the wrong things instead of saying what the Bible says... He can defeat you. And that's the only way he can defeat you. The principle of faith is very simply this. You will have what you say. So if you look around in your life, you don't like like what you have, all you got to do is change what you're saying. Now that discounts the standing in faith, the things that you're believing for and so forth and just haven't materialized yet. I get that. But the rule is you have what you say. So what is the devil after? He's after your words. So how does he try to get to your words? Through circumstances, affecting your emotions, and your thoughts. It's the only way he has. It's the only work he can do. So Paul starts talking about this loin belt of truth. In other words, he's saying, Let the word of God, the truth of God's word, be the foundation and, and, and tie everything else together. The belt tied the other pieces of armor together. And without the belt, you could have the breastplate. The breastplate started at the shoulders and, and, and really came down uh, kind of in a skirt-type thing to mid-calf. And without that belt, there was no security for the, for the breastplate. And so he's saying the Word of God is the, thing that, the, the foundational piece of the armor that everything else attaches to. That loin belt also had hooks on it where the sword hung. It had another hook on the other side where you could put the the shield, which he calls the shield of faith. It ties everything together. So he's saying the word of God has to be the foundation. So it's the belt that helps keep us and guard us from being ruled by our emotions. The next thing he says, having the, the... belt of truth, the loins girt about with truth. The next thing he mentions is having on the breastplate of righteousness. Now this breastplate of righteousness is interesting because it was a highly polished thing. There were two things that the Roman army was known for. One were the helmets that they wore. They had these, in many cases they had these uh, in the ceremonial helmets, had these plumes and, and feathers and all that kind of stuff and, uh, and that wasn't the case for, uh, for the battle helmets. But the battle helmets still were ornate pieces of armor that guarded their heads. And the second thing was the the breastplate. The breastplate were, were carved, they were engraved, pieces of uh, usually brass. And they say, I, I don't know anything about it personally, but they say that the way that the breastplate was constructed, it had movable pieces. It wasn't just one big piece of metal. It had movable pieces that kind of slid over uh, one on top of one another. And as a result it polished this thing To a real bright shine In fact They say that in uh, certain battles When the sun was positioned just right the, The Roman armies Would just put down their shields When they were in the distance Would put down their shields And let the sun reflect off of their breastplates And in many cases it would blind the enemy Temporarily blind the enemy But it was always a sign or a symbol Of who they were and that, that was intended to strike fear and terror into the hearts of their enemies. So where it talks about the breastplate, putting on the breastplate of righteousness, it's very simply saying this. Now remember all these are, are things that we're to understand. When it says put on the breastplate of righteousness, I've seen people get up in the morning and, and go through the motions where they're really putting something on and stuff like that. Well, that's crazy. I mean, if, it, if they think it works for them and they want to keep it going, more power to them. But it's, it, that's nuts. Because what it's saying is have an understanding of righteousness. Have an understanding of righteousness. Have an understanding that you're secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing can affect that security. He's always on your side. He's with you. He's in you. He's recreated you in his image. You are the very nature of God yourself. God can only be for you. Can never be against you. And because you're righteous... There is no work of the devil that can stand against you. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about having an understanding of who you are. Understanding who you are. Understanding who you are. Now, the fact that he uses the breastplate of righteousness is a symbol or an illustration that it guards the center of man. The center of man's being. Well, that's where you've been made righteous is in the center of your being. You were spiritually recreated recreated in the righteousness of God. And as a result, that's who you are. That's not just what you do. Hopefully it is what you do, works of righteousness, but it's who you are. It's your nature. And that nature will never change. That nature will never change. Now, some you say that and some people say, oh, Pastor Michael, you're saying that once you're saved, you can't ever get out. Who wants out? Why in the world would we want to talk about that? That's what I mean by your nature will never change. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Yeah, but aren't the things that a person can do to get out of the family of God? Yeah. But why should we concern ourselves with that? Who wants out? We'll say a prayer right now. It's silly. And it's always somebody's concern for somebody else. Well, what about somebody else? Listen, somebody else is between them and God. Paul did give us some instruction about it, but to be honest with you, in my personal opinion, most people never gain the, the level of spiritual maturity to be able to get out. I know the devil torments some people with certain things, but I've never found anybody that was spiritually mature enough to re, the, who really wanted out. So he says, having two things he mentions. First of all, the truth of God's word, the foundation is God's word of truth. And secondly, he said the breastplate of righteousness. Now, these are things that you are supposed to guard your mind. They're supposed to guard your mind. How many times does the devil try to tell you you're not worthy of whatever you're trying to attain from the Lord? Well, righteousness does away with that. He'll tell you, well, you've been such a bad guy and, and you made a mistake last week and whatever the case is. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with who God is. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, even if I messed up this morning before church. And me messing up this morning before church wouldn't change the fact that I am righteous in God's sight. I've been created as, as a righteous spirit. And my behavior or a mistake or a slip up doesn't change that. That's what Paul is saying that he should, that he's, wants the church to understand if you're going to walk in victory over the Lord. So many people are robbed of what really belongs to them because they're listening to the devil telling them that they're not worthy to have it. Can I make a suggestion to you folks if the devil's hounding you in that, that regard? Go ahead and agree with him. You're right, Mr. Devil. I'm not worthy of that. But I'm not trying to get it based on who I am. What I have is the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus. How's he going to answer that? He has no defense for that. Next he mentions having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Please notice he doesn't say having your feet shod with the gospel of peace. He says having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now these words are a little blind to us from the, uh, from the English translation. And, and we don't know too much about Roman soldiers and their armor and so forth. But when a Roman soldier was going out to battle, he had shoes that were, that were almost like boots. We think of the Roman soldiers with the little uh, leather straps that kind of wind up around the calf and so forth. Well, those um, were certainly used in cities, but they were not used for battle. The Roman soldier's shoes were kind of like a boot in that it had a shoe piece, but then it also had what were called greaves, which were metal pieces that came up on the, the front and the rear of the leg, almost to the knee. And so when he's talking about these shoes, he's talking about the, the weapons of war that protect the leg. You could well understand that if a Roman soldier went out, he could be decked out in, in the shield and the breastplate and all the other um, elements of armor and so forth. But if his legs are uncovered, Quit aiming for his head. Hit, his, hit him below the knee. Once you hit him below the knee, he's down, you got him. So they would never go out to battle unprotected like that. They would wear these things, these shoe type things with greaves and these shoes had metal spikes in the bottom. Now there are differences of opinion what the metal spikes were for. Some people say that uh, that they sharpened these spikes and, and uh, almost every Roman soldier went Uh, Out into service with a slave. And these slaves were responsible for maintaining the armor and taking care of the the daily duties and so forth. And some people say, and and there's some historical evidence to back it up. I don't know if it's reliable or not, but uh, they say that some of these soldiers would have their slaves uh, sharpen the spikes because if you could get somebody down, you could well understand that the sharpened spike on the bottom of your shoe would do them in. That also has a pretty... Scriptural application when the Bible talks about the devil being under your feet. Being under your feet. But at any rate, these spikes were certainly beneficial for traction. And that's what it really means where it says, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace is twofold one is the peace of God can be your guide and keep you in peace. The Bible talks about the peace that passes understanding. There are sometimes when a supernatural peace will cause you to have joy and be settled and, and, and be calm in the midst of a great trial or a great storm. That's a supernatural peace that's available to us because we are in Christ Jesus. And that peace of God will rule and reign when you focus your life on the Word, when you let your emotions be dominated and ruled by the Word of God instead of by circumstances. But the other part of the peace of God is that, that we have peace with God. The Bible is very specific and very detailed about the fact that we have peace with God. The fact that he's talking about shoes is talking about motions, talking about wherever you go. So it's saying God's with you and God's on your side no matter where you go. And that peace can guide the steps that you take in life. So where it says, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace... How do we get that peace to govern and operate in our lives wherever we go and whatever we do? Well, the answer is very simple. It has to do with your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And that literally means to be bound up tightly, to be bound up tightly so that you're always standing on a firm foundation that's what having your feet shod with the gospel of peace is about or shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace it's talking about the tightness that they're bound with that those shoes are bound with so that your steps in life are sure and ordered and certain sure and ordered and certain next he mentions another piece he says above all Taking the shield of faith. Now, above all, there's several different translations on that. One uh, translation will point out, or, or some translations will point out, that Paul is saying that this is the most important piece of the armor. But that doesn't seem to make sense because without the loin belt of truth, without the truth of God's word, you can't have a shield of faith anyway. So, above all may mean and probably means overall. Now, there are different words that Paul uses that are available in the Greek language where shields are concerned. Roman soldiers had two shields. One was a small round shield that they used for ceremonial purposes. It's the one you see that's, that's about the, the circumference or the diameter of, of the uh, elbow to, to wrist, and they'll use that in those sword fights, and you see those sometimes in the gladiator movies and, and that kind of stuff. That's not the word Paul uses here. The word for shield here literally means door. And it was a shield that they carried that was about the size of a door. Now the importance of that is you can hide behind it. There's no part of you that's exposed with a shield that size. Now the shield, notice what the shield of faith it does. It says, above all or over all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you may be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. The fiery darts of the wicked were just like we've seen in some, some movies and so forth. The movie Gladiator is a real good example where they would take these, these catapult trebuchet things and, and uh, launch these uh, jars or containers of oil and so forth, and they would light them, and when they hit, then they would spread and splash incendiary fluid and so forth. They'd do the same thing with arrows. They'd tip arrows, uh, dip arrows, the tip of arrows into these things and shoot these flaming arrows at the enemy. Well, what are they going to do? These shields were not made of metal. They were made of leather, multiple layers of leather, usually up to about six layers of leather. You can imagine if a cowhide, one layer of leather is as tough as it is, how tough would six layers be? And they would put these things together, and they would uh, bind them and and, uh, weave them together real tightly so that they'd be strong and stable and so forth, but still pretty lightweight. But now, you know as well as I do, leather has to be maintained. Now, this shield of faith that he's talking about and using it as an illustration, in the same way, your faith has to be maintained. Now, the way they would maintain it is that they would have the slaves oil these leather and shields. Oil is always used as a type of the, of the Holy Spirit. So your faith needs to be led of the Holy Spirit. Your faith needs to be refreshed with the Holy Spirit. You need to keep your faith fresh by the Word of God as, as directed and inspired by the Spirit of God. So what they would do is they would take these, these leather shields and they would oil those things down regularly so that they stayed lightweight and they wouldn't get brittle and crack on them. Now another thing that would happen is when they would go out to battle, when the, the day before a battle, they would soak these shields in water so that by the time they went out to battle, these shields, these leather shields that had been oiled and, and taken care of and so forth, would extinguish any of these fiery arrows, flaming arrows, instead of igniting like they were intended to do and spread fire throughout the, the camp or throughout the army, they would be extinguished with this shield of faith. Now, these are things that Paul apparently is gaining knowledge of through these Roman soldiers that he's tied up with and, and, uh, and bound to. So, where it says, above all or overall, taking the shield of faith, Wherewith you may be able to quench all the fiery darts of the of the wicked. When he's talking about this, he sees a perfect correlation, a perfect parallel, to the spiritual weapons that we've been given, that are even greater than the the, the strongest military force known to, to mankind at that time, which was the Roman army. He goes further and says, "And taking the sword of the spirit." Now there are seven. Uh, I'm sorry, five different words in the Greek language for for swords. Most of them the Roman soldiers had access to. The one that Paul uses is the smallest one of the bunch. There were these long curved ceremonial swords. There were the pirate-looking swords. There were swords that were designed without, uh, without edges but were uh, kind of like fencing swords made for stabbing. But this sword that he talks about is a small 18 and 19-inch sword that had sharpened edges razor-sharp edges on both ends, and a and honed to a fine point at the end so that it could be used in close combat. Now, historical records tell us that when the Romans uh, invented this sword, and when this sword was invented, the, um, uh, they first went out to battle, they equipped the army with them and first went out to battle the enemies. They drew their swords, and their enemies started laughing at them because they had these great, big old long swords, you know, these these medieval-looking things, Knights of the round table type stuff that would take all day long to swing and that kind of stuff, you know? I mean, you ever make contact, and, and whatever you make contact with is done, that's for sure. But they came against the, the Roman army, and all of a sudden the Roman, the Roman army is movable, is much more mobile. Uh, they, can, they can swing and yield, wield these swords much easier, and they just cut through their enemies like crazy. Well, after one battle and using these swords, the rest of the world fell in fear to this special new sword, and everybody rushed to to create the same thing and so forth. Well, that's what Paul is talking about. It's a small two-edged sword. And he says, taking the sword of the Spirit, taking the sword of the Spirit. This sword of the Spirit that he refers to, the word that he uses, is in perfect connection with and in line with the way that the the Word of God is talked about in other places in the Bible. For example, in... uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. He said, The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's this sword that he talks about. This is the same word that he uses for this small sword. Two other places in Revelation it speaks of Jesus coming with his two-edged sword in his mouth. Now that's a strange picture. A two-edged sword in his mouth. What does that mean? Now Paul doesn't use the word here, but since he uses a word that refers to the same things in Hebrews and both Revelation, two times in Revelation, then we can gain some understanding about what he's referring to. Where he's talking about the two-edged sword, which he identifies as the sword of the Spirit. The words that are translated edged, two-edged sword, are literally the words mouth. So when Jesus appears in Revelation, he appears with a two-mouthed sword. Well, that doesn't make sense. you can understand why the translators didn't translate it like that. What is it talking about? Well, the Bible tells us that the word of God doesn't return void when it returns to God from our mouths. See, the word of God that's effective, the sword of the Spirit, is the word of God first spoken by God, second spoken by you. It's a two-mouthed sword. When it comes out of your mouth, that's when it becomes a weapon. Now, folks, you need to understand something else, and that is this. Whereas Paul is talking about individual pieces of armor, he's not talking about the church as one soldier. He's talking about the church as an army. So if we're standing here fully clothed with the armor of God, fully equipped, ready to go, we would have our shield of faith. Well, let me, I missed a piece. Let me finish the the pieces before I say this. I think it will make more sense. Finally, the last thing he mentions is the helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. I skipped over that in the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. What's the helmet of salvation? The helmet of salvation was very simply this. It was a metal fitting over the head to protect you from losing your head, literally losing your head. An understanding of who you are in Christ Jesus will keep you from losing your head in the middle of adversity. It's to guard your mind. It's to keep you thinking rightly. Remember, that's the only road the devil has is in your mind, is in your thought life. He'll use circumstances to influence your thoughts. For what purpose? He's trying to gain access to your words. He knows what many Christians don't know, unfortunately, and that is, our words govern our lives. Your authority in Christ Jesus is reflected by the words that you speak. So, as I began to say, Paul's not talking about the church being one soldier. When the Roman armies would go out, they would go out shield to shield, these door sized shields. On the front line, it would look like just one solid shield, they'd hook them side to side. And so it would look like one, long, one barrier. But what's the guy behind me? If I'm on the front line and I've got my shield out, what's the guy behind me doing with his shield? Well, in times of battle when the, the enemy would uh, shoot arrows and stuff like that, the second row would take their shield and put it over the heads of the first row. And then the guy behind them would put their shields over there. So now you've got an enclosed protective barrier all the way around. And this is what Paul talks about that the Word of God and who we are in Christ and the spiritual armor, the spiritual equipment that we've been given will do to protect us from all the work of the enemy. For what purpose? Verse 18. Forgive me for running through this, but they took my time earlier in the service. We could do a week on each one of the pieces of armor. But notice what the purpose is. And again, remember, it's an army. It's not an individual soldier that Paul is referring to. The church is not an individual soldier. It's an army working in concert one with another. For what purpose? To pray. To pray. God wants you to have victory over the devil in your own life so that you can pray and help other people gain victory in their lives. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance for all saints. Praying always with all perseverance and supplication in the Spirit. In the Spirit here does not mean in other tongues. Most translations say, uh, many translations say, praying with all prayer, praying with all kinds of prayer, in other words. Well, not all kinds of prayer can be prayed in the Spirit. You don't pray the prayer of faith in other tongues. So what does he mean praying all kinds of prayer and supplication in the Spirit? He means motivated by the Holy Ghost. He means inspired by the Holy Ghost. So you can pray in the Holy Ghost certainly by praying in other tongues, but you can pray in English or your known language as inspired by the Holy Ghost, and that's important too. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. Paul Paul was not a charismatic. Paul did not say, Since I speak in tongues, I've given up on that praying in English stuff. No, he recognized the importance of both. Why? Well, folks, if the Holy Ghost can't inspire you to speak in an own language, in English or whatever your first language is, then we would certainly want to abandon that for the benefit of praying in other tongues because that's always by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. But the fact that Paul says, I'll do both, means that he recognizes that he can be just as inspired to pray in English or in his language, Greek, just as much as when he prays in other tongues. Prayer is an effective weapon for the church if we are wearing the armor of God. Now, what does the Roman army know? or What is it known for? Well, again, uh, some of the Roman movies, Roman army movies are are good to point out. The Roman armies did not just count on their foot soldiers. They had other elements of... uh, uh, battlements and and so forth they would throw the 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 catapult things and and destroy the enemy soften the enemy up so to speak before the the foot soldiers went in that's what prayer does prayer is a long-range weapon prayer is a long-range weapon he's talking about the individual soldiers having weapons to to deal with hand-to-hand combat that we will have and and encounter where the enemy is concerned but he says prayer is a long-range weapon and we're to wear the armor, we're to be fully clothed in the armor of God for the purpose of being equipped so that we can use our long-range weapons effectively. Well, what makes long-range prayer effective? Being motivated by the Holy Ghost and what to pray. Praying always with all prayer, are all kinds of prayer, and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplications for all saints. Notice one of the things Paul says we're supposed to pray for, each other. You know why most people don't pray for other people? Most Christians don't pray for other Christians. Do you know why? Because they're in such a fight themselves, they're occupied with their own victory, their own circumstances. But if you're overcoming the devil for yourself, look at how much of of your time that frees up to pray for other people as you're inspired by the Holy Ghost. That's the whole picture that Paul is trying to paint for the church. A church full of people that are walking in victory for themselves and able to be influenced and inspired by the Holy Ghost to pray for others. And for me, verse 19, Paul goes on to say, pray for me too. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds. He's talking about being in prison in Rome. For which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, can I ask you a question? Why doesn't Paul say, I'm just looking for opportunities to tell people all the good stuff I know? He is the one that knows it. It's his revelation that we're going to be judged by. It's his revelation that he's teaching the church. Notice he seems to indicate that prayer is important for him to be able to speak boldly because boldness and speaking boldly as he ought to speak doesn't just come from a decision on his part to tell what he knows. Folks, there's a difference in knowledge and anointed teaching. Huge difference. You can fill somebody's head with facts and it won't have one bit of transforming power to it. But you can take a little bit of truth anointed by the Holy Ghost and man, people's lives will be changed in a heartbeat. That's what he's talking about. You want to know something to pray for? Pray for me. That I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. I have so many people that come up to me and bless their hearts if they only knew how wrong they were. But I've had people all throughout my ministry come up and say, Pastor Mike, I've never known anybody to know the Bible like you. I thought, boy, you don't know anybody. If I'm your greatest example of knowledge of the Word, bless your heart. Because I'm conscious of what I don't know. Well, what would make sense? I was on a plane one time. And it's not like me to strike up a conversation with with strangers. (laughs) You're surprised at that, I can tell. but it was later in the week and I was having a service that weekend so I got out my Bible and op- I opened my Bible and of course everybody knows what a Bible is I mean that's, that's like uh, putting a crucifix out in front of a vampire you know everybody shies away from it And I mean you, you look at pornography on your iPad on the, on the plane and, and nobody would care but you pull out a Bible and boy everybody gets nervous <laughs> so anyway I had my Bible out on the tray table and so the guy started talking to me a little bit, and he said, uh, "He said, I see you are reading your Bible." I said, "Yes, I am." <laughs> he said, uh, "Are you a preacher?" I thought, "Isn't it interesting that you got to be a preacher if you're reading your Bible?" <laughs> I said, "Yeah, as a matter of fact, I am." So we got talking a little bit, and, and and so forth. And he said, uh, uh, "He he found out what kind of church we we uh, were, and that we were spirit filled, and so forth." And he said. Uh, he said, you know, I've been going to church all my life. And he said, I, I sought after the baptism of the Holy Ghost one time. He said, I prayed for it, but I didn't get it. He said, and, and ever since then, I just kind of lost interest and haven't really been back to church much and so forth. He said, what do you think about that? And I said, well, the only thing I know is that Jesus said, if you being good parents know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask you? He said, yeah, I I know that was there. I I, I hadn't thought about that in a long time. So he got around to asking me something else. Well, what about this? I said, well, all I know. And I quoted that verse of scripture again. I must have quoted that verse of scripture to him over the next 30 minutes five times. Finally, after that fifth time, he said, man, you know more about the Bible than anybody I've ever seen. (laughs) I've given him one scripture five times. (laughs) My point is very simply this, folks. It's not just about knowledge. It's about spirit-led and spirit-anointed knowledge. That's what Paul's praying for. He's not even praying that God would give him more knowledge. He's not saying, pray for me that God will show me even more than I've ever seen. He's saying, pray for me that I'll be able to speak boldly, that utterance will be given to me, that I may be able to speak boldly as I ought to speak. uh, When you look at the early church in prayer, you'll find out that a lot of their praying was occupied with boldness. Grant unto your servants boldness they prayed in Acts 4 that we may speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know something to pray for? Pray for boldness. Pray for boldness. So many times people think well if I came up on somebody that needed Jesus I wouldn't know what to say. Of course you know what to say. You just need the boldness to say it. You know how you got saved. Tell them that. Everybody knows what they need to know to help somebody else. At least on that level. We just need boldness to do it. So Paul said, praying always with all prayer, all kinds of prayer and supplication in the spirit, motivated by the spirit. And watching thereunto with all perseverance. Nothing works very well if you don't stay with it. With all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, pray for me that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. What does Paul say that the church's position in the world should be? One of victory and moving forward to speak boldly in the name of Jesus. That's what the church is supposed to look like to the world. That's the whole point. That's the whole purpose. There's not 50,000 messages or 50,000 Purposes or 50,000 uh, um, assignments that the church has, it's only one: walk in victory for yourself and be ready to speak boldly to help somebody else. That's it. That's it. Pray for others, help them along the way. Like I said, praying for others is pretty a rare occasion if you're not walking in victory for yourselves. But that's what the Bible says belongs to you. But folks, if you're going to walk in victory, you're going to have to outlast the devil. Paul finishes up with just some minor closing words. But that you may also know my affairs and how I do. Tychicus, my beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things. It's exactly what he said to the Colossians, which which causes us to know that he delivered both letters at the same time whom I have sent to you for the same purpose that you might know by our affairs, that he might comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Paul finishes up by saying, very specifically, the thing that is most important for you and for the church world at large is to walk in victory over the devil for yourself so that you can pray from a position of being seated with, God, with Jesus at the right hand of God the Father so that your prayers may be affected to win the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you've equipped us with everything that we'll ever need to overcome the devil in everything and every attack that he makes. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that the victory is ours and this is the victory that overcomes the world. It's even our faith. I pray, Father, that you would grant us patience. That we would stick to it. That we would hold fast to those things which we believed. That we would not cast away our confidence, Father, but rather that we would be strong in you. Immovable. Resisting the devil on every hand. For your word says that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. Father, I thank you for causing us to know That we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That your word never fails. That the truth of your word is a sure foundation for us to stand upon. That we have peace with you and that we can be led by peace in every circumstance and situation. Father, thank you for the helmet of salvation. For guarding our minds as we renew them to your word. And Lord, we thank you so much for the sword of the spirit. The word that works when we speak it. When we speak your words, Father, it's like a sword that takes apart the enemy's plans and defeats him on every hand. Father, make us a praying church. I ask you, Father, that 2016 would be a year of prayer more than ever before, that we would commit ourselves to pray, we would commit ourselves to being motivated to pray by the Holy Ghost, that we would pray God-given prayers Not selfish prayers, but God-given prayers. God-directed prayers so that the work of the Lord would be done. Lord, give us boldness to speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal. And that signs and wonders would be done in the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Give us boldness, Father, to speak boldly as we ought to speak. We don't need opportunities to speak, Lord. We just need boldness to step into those opportunities. Lord, we thank you for the victory that we have in you. In Jesus' precious name, amen, amen, amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Come on back and be with us tonight for prayer school at 5 o'clock and healing school at 6 if you can. Have a wonderful day and you're dismissed.